Welcome to the BBXX podcast. Let's get intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and we're here to challenge the way our culture has conditioned us to talk about sexuality, intimacy, and healthy relationships. To question everything, to embark on a journey of self-understanding, and to begin to rewire some of the backwards thinking that we've absorbed from the subconscious influences that have shaped us all. Our hope for you, and for myself, and for all of us here at BBXX, who are here with you on this journey every day, is that through a better understanding of our own identity, of who we are, and why we are that way, we can form deeper connections with other people and live healthier, more fulfilling relationships as a result. Join us as we change the conversation and the culture surrounding intimacy and relationships. And remember that better relationships equals a better life. In today's interview with Dr. Robert Weiss, we learn what it means to be, quote, an addict how narcissistic tendencies perpetuate addiction, and what our upbringing has subconsciously taught us about healthy relationships and dependency. Dr. Rob is an expert in the treatment of addiction and adult intimacy disorders, and the author of Pro-Dependence, Moving Beyond Codependency, which seeks to shift the word codependency from a culture that casts blame on those who are struggling to help a loved one navigate mental illness or addiction to a space where they are allowed to be close to that person and encourage their recovery, yet not enable their addiction. Thank you so much for joining us today here and without forcing you to dive all the way into your childhood, um, but perhaps from a somewhat personal perspective, I'd love you to start out by just telling us, you know, how you became interested in what you study, how, how you would describe it to our listeners, sure, um, and how you feel it's important. Well, I'm not sure I can say that in order. I mean, my own personal story is one of having been hypersexual and had a lot of sexual acting out, a lot of compulsive and addictive behavior, a lot of drug use when I was a teenager and a young adult. And I didn't understand that that, that wasn't a way that I was going to be able to live. I just thought having sex with lots of people and doing lots of that it was all going to work fine and then I was going to get a great job and everything would be... And unfortunately, when you live that way, life doesn't go so well. And so dating, intimacy, relationships, forget about it. You know, consistency, a great job, not happening. And when my life in my 20s wasn't really happening, I started realizing what it was about. And it was this compulsive and addictive behavior that ruled my life. And for me, that meant finding a 12-step program uh, which is where I first went, just to be around people who had the same problem. And it was like, oh my God, I'm not alone. And, you know, I think I went to Sex Actors Anonymous or Sexual Impulses Anonymous. And I got involved with 12-step. And But the times are very important here. And by the way, if you ever talk to gay men my age in their late 50s, they will all probably say this in one way or another. And then along came HIV AIDS in the late 80s. And all of a sudden, other people who had sexual problems or sexual acting out were dying or sick. And I'd had enough sex to populate China. And I knew people who'd had sex with two or three people, and they were sick and dying. So for me, that was kind of what you might say a spiritual awakening, or it motivated me to understand that there are people who act certain ways that are harmful to themselves and others, and they really don't have control over it. As much as they wish it could be different, they don't. And in the area of human sexuality, 
when someone is sexually compulsive or addictive back in the day, that meant that they were going to have unsafe sex. And so I realized that, oh my God, I am looking at a leading issue around sexuality, which is compulsive and addictive sex, that is directly intersecting with HIV transmission because when addicts have sex, they don't care about who they're with, what they're doing. They're not paying attention. They are going to spread disease, and they do. So, um, and I knew that there weren't any nice heterosexual therapists from the Midwest who were going to be able to talk about gay sex because no one wanted to hear it. So I got out there and went back to school and got a degree and started writing and speaking and and really discovered the whole field of problematic behavior as an addiction, gambling, spending, uh, eating, um, things that are not necessarily like taking a drug, but but do have a drug-like effect on you and can leave someone's life out of control. And so I've spent the last 25 years working with impulsivity, compulsivity, addiction around mostly um, behaviors or behaviors that are tied to drug use. Because I work with people who they can't stop using drugs because they hate themselves around their sex life or they hate their sexuality or they don't want to be gay or that, you know, whatever it is. So they drink or use related to um, their discomfort with themselves. And until that's resolved, we can't get them sober. So that's a little bit. But I mean, I've written lots of books. I've written like 10 books and opened a bunch of treatment centers and I teach all over the world. And it's been an amazing ride. Um, for some reason, somewhere in the early 1990s, maybe something to do with the internet, there started to be some problems with sex in ways we hadn't seen them before. And that's just when I got started. And so I was able to write about and learn about the problems that adults are now having with porn and compulsive sexual behavior related to apps and all of that. I was seeing the Tinder grinder, you know, mashup 10 years ago in terms of the problems it was causing. And, you know, now we actually have a diagnosis for compulsive sexuality. The World Health Organization just gave us one. And so now, after many, many years, there's actually recognition in my field that people who act out sexually are not necessarily sleazy. They're not necessarily amoral. They're not necessarily bad people who don't care about their families, although that's how it might look in the moment. They may, in fact, be doing things that they feel compelled to do because their lives and their sense of self is out of control. And we can fix that. I loved how you mentioned that it all starts with yourself and kind of those people can't make amends elsewhere until they make amends within. Well, you've got to stop drinking and using before anyone's going to believe anything you have to say. Or before, yeah, yeah, or before, but I mean, I mean like fully yourself. recover, not just well, stopping recovery. using. I mean, kind of being able to truly re-engage and... Uh, with other people in a meaningful way and in a way that they can count on you versus it coming from selfish. Well, it's interesting you say that because um, it's a journey, the recovery process for any addict. And it's a journey from selfishness and narcissism into connection. Because if you think about the person who's using, they don't care about anything except getting to the drug. That's their primary relationship is the drug. That's the most important thing to them is having access to it and being able to access it. So, I mean, I always use this story. You know, I've worked with a guy who would, uh, who was a heroin addict who would uh, spend his kid's college fund buying drugs. But four years later, when he was sober, he went and worked three jobs to pay those college funds back. So that's not a sociopath. That's not a bad person. That's not an uncaring person. That's someone who is very, very broken and unconscious. And through their brokenness, we're able to help them become conscious, and then they take responsibility for their life. How much are either these addictive or compulsive behaviors related to, so that people can understand it on a deeper level, kind of the people around them versus the person themselves? 
Well, first of all, I mean, you asked me a little bit about my background, so maybe I can tell you a little bit. Maybe this will be helpful. So I had a mentally ill mother, and my mom was in and out of psychiatric hospitals much of my childhood. And I grew up in the 1960s where no one talked about that. Nobody wanted to have friends come over to your house. It was awful. And I really never grew up with any kind of ability to trust or rely on my caregivers. I had to learn to rely on myself. And I think this is very frequently the experience of those of us who become addicts, that in our most um, important developmental stage, when what we're supposed to be learning about as little babies and young children is to trust, to rely on, to depend. What people who grow up in extremely troubled backgrounds learn about is to protect themselves, to notice what's going on and figure out how do I manipulate the situation so nobody gets mad or who do I need to be as a kid so mom is happy or they're they're turning themselves into knots trying to make a situation that should just meet their needs meet their needs. And when you have to create or evoke or make a childhood happen and protect yourself, what you don't learn about is really trusting people. You know, I, I think, Sasha, this would be a great way to think about this. There was an old term for drug addiction, and we don't use it much anymore, called chemical dependency. And the reason I really like that term is because people become dependent on drugs, alcohol, sex, gambling, gaming, because they do not feel safe depending on people. And the person who is an alcoholic is the person who says, oh my God, I had a really shitty day. I'm going to have a drink. The person who's not an alcoholic is going to say, wow, I had a really crappy day. I'm going to go talk to some friends, go for a run. In other words, they understand, healthy people understand the connection and relationship soothes us. You know, I can be sad and sit all alone and be sad, but if I reach out to you and I say, you know, I'm kind of sad today, and you say, I'm really sorry, it doesn't take the sadness away, but there's some deepening of my stability that you and I are sharing my experience. And people who are addicts almost universally learn very early in life not to share what's going on with them, not to reach out for help, not to raise their hand and say, will you pay attention to me? Because the outcome of that in childhood hasn't been very positive. And so they take that into adult life as, I got to handle my problems on myself. I got to figure it all out on my own. I shouldn't rely on other people for help. And, you know, it's kind of like every addict I've ever met, needless and wantless. The problem is that you can't go through life like that. People are meant to depend on people. We are meant to be connected. We are at our healthiest when we are pair bonded and deeply embedded in meaningful community. That's what makes us the happiest. And we all know that on some level. Yeah. In a couple of my recent interviews, too, it's come forward that social support and these close, intimate relationships and all of that that you're talking about being so important in this, not only for recovery or happiness, but your longevity, your mental and physical health, just they're everything. Um, I wonder why. I wonder why we all do so much better. And, and let me actually add to that, Sasha, because if you think about the people who are most troubled in our culture, the, the truly addicted and the mentally ill, when we find them and try to help them, where do we find them? We find them alone. Addicts are isolated alone. Mentally ill people are isolated alone. And what do we do when we try to bring them into our centers and our treatment? We bring them into connection. We bring them into groups and with people. And we re-engage them with people. And their needs, all of our needs, which are met by relationships, start to get met by connecting to people rather than getting high or using or all of that. And ultimately, that is the lesson of treatment. If I can teach someone that they absolutely will have their needs met by other people if they're willing to reach out and ask, that is the greatest gift that I can give them. I love how you, when you mentioned chemical dependency in that term, it also reminded me of the fact that there are certain chemical dispositions that people have for dependency that makes it so interesting. Mm -hmm. And also now just hearing you kind of relating to kind of connection, fulfilling the same need, it reminds me that 
many of these kind of neurotransmitters are fired by things such as connection literally in the same way that yes. that drugs do so uh, I, I think, think drug addicts um almost universally and we will come to see that in the coming days have brain damage you know th this is about our brains we are acting in ways that are dysfunctional they don't make sense but we do them anyway why is that because my brain is wired not to trust people my brain is wired not to reach out to people and in when facing stress or life or difficulty if you can't reach out to people and you don't believe that they will reward you by the connection, then you got to fix your problem on your own. And the only way to do that is to drink, to sex, to gamble, to all of that. Addiction is a disease of disconnection, but connection isn't the sole uh, healing of addiction. People need, they're, they're, by the time they seek help, they're often so beaten down in trouble that they need more than just a group of people. But I'll tell you what, what is every AA meeting? but a group of people coming together, sharing their own experience, trying to be in a community together without shame or judgment to try to grow. And that is the basic building block right there. You mention um, the role that kind of selfish thoughts and narcissism play in addiction. And so I found it interesting because I found myself in one of the questions that I was trying to phrase being around how I think a lot of times and not necessarily talking about addiction, but any kind of issue people have, they think, well, this is my problem, and it's it's not a problem until it affects other people, as long as it's just me that's suffering or just me, uh, you know, that knows about it, has to navigate this, then, you know, it's not worth figuring out, or I have it under wraps. And so, one, is any problem is it even possible for it not to affect other people? And, and how does that kind of belief or false belief relate to those selfish thoughts and that kind of narcissistic thinking that, that you refer to often? Well, addicts live in bubbles, you know, and I live, if I'm an active addict, I'm living in a bubble of my own making where I think I can have my cake and eat it too. And as long as nobody really knows about my problem, then I'm going to be fine. You know, I'm talking about addiction as the result of early childhood trauma before most people can even remember the kinds of things that happen when you're one and you're two and you're three and you're four. And, and oftentimes we don't have any memories of those, of those kinds of things, but they will affect how we act the rest of our lives. So when I talk about brain damage, I'm not saying brain damage from drinking and using. I'm saying brain damage from early childhood trauma that almost every addict I've ever met has had profound early deficits in their upbringing. And as a result, they literally don't know how to live. <laughs> they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to rely on people. They don't know how to deal with stress. They don't know how to do self-care. All the things that you learn when you're in a relationship with a very engaged parent or caregiver, they don't learn that. So if you're raising yourself, that's what you learn if you grow up in those kinds of environments, and addicts very much are people who've raised themselves. So you have to understand, if my brain did not develop toward connection, relationship, intimacy, and as safety as a two-year-old, but it more developed toward better watch out, better look around, better see what's going on, better... St that's not going to change when I'm 40. When we talk about addiction being a lifelong issue, it's because the injuries that occur that create it are so early, and they persist throughout life. I work with a gentleman... Uh, not so long ago, who was talking about, um, you know, his all his childhood that he can remember, his mother was drinking about half a bottle of vodka a day and his dad about three six packs. So when I and I and he said to me, you know, I made a decision at 20 
that I was going to put my childhood behind me and never look at it again. I was going to have a happy life. I'm smart. I'm good looking. I'm going to go live my life. And there he is at, you know, in his 40s in a treatment center, having been involved in domestic violence and alcoholism and sexually acting out all over the place. And he doesn't even understand why, when his intention is to be a good person, he ended up like this. And the answer is very clear. You know, when you grow up, when I explore his childhood with him, like, did you ever get hugged? No. Did you ever see your parents holding each other, kissing? No. Did anyone ever help you with your homework? No. When you've never been held or you don't remember being held, when your primary memory of your parents is that they're screaming at each other, when you don't remember Jack about someone actually having to reach out, I mean, those are the basics. Those are the very basics that you're getting held, hugged, and someone's helping you with homework. How about all the rest of the good stuff? Most addicts that I work with, uh, when you really reflect back on their experience growing up, didn't learn the most basic thing that people need to learn, which is when you are in trouble, reach out your hand and find someone to help you. Because in their earliest experiences, their caregivers did not do that. And so they learned they were on their own. When you're teaching someone at 25 or 30 or 50 to start reaching out to people, it's terrifying for them. They're used to living a double life. They're used to being able to have control over things in, in, in their mind. Healthy people who grow up in, in responsive, engaged families that, not perfect, but that more often than not meet the child's needs, that child grows up learning self-esteem. That child learns that when I reach out to people, more often than not, they will respond to me. More often than not, they will help me. And that is a learned experience they carry through life. So a healthier person might say, oh, like I said, oh, I have a crappy day. I'll talk to a friend. I'll go for a run. I'll... They already have an incense inside of them that there are ways to make themselves feel better through actions and connection. But addicts often have not ever learned that. They have learned, and you have to understand that the way children manage reality is through fantasy, young children. So if I'm in a very desperately miserable situation with my caregivers, I just lose myself in books and video games, and I lose myself, and I go somewhere else. We have a word dissociation, to space out, to check out, or to separate from yourself. And people who go through trauma, especially chronic extended trauma, learn to use fantasy to escape emotionally. So a fantasy escape is a good idea. When you're having a hard day, fantasizing about a vacation, hey, that's a good thing to do. But if that's your sole coping mechanism, then in adult life, you turn to something as a distraction or an escape like a fantasy, drugs, sex, gambling, all intensity-based non-reality experiences. You don't simply turn to someone else and ask for help. Or connect. And you also say that you don't recover alone. No one recovers alone because in a disease of isolation, you, it requires others to have hope. And that your partner is not that main support, though. That you don't recover alone doesn't necessarily mean that your partner bears the burden of that. And so I thought it was interesting when you talked about that dynamic and, and kind of... because. I would think, um, you know, the partner obviously has to be supportive and involved in some way to maybe maximize, maybe doesn't, it's not necessary, but I would imagine it would contribute to the rate of success. But as you mentioned, you know, they might be angry. They might, you know, not want to participate. So how is that kind of shared responsibility determined or, or how would you give people advice on how to navigate that? So for family members and loved ones of addicts, I think that we have been through a fairly challenging 35 years. Um, the only model of treatment we've had is one called codependency. 
And codependency has never really been validated. It's never, it's really a pop culture phenomenon. There's no diagnosis for codependency. There have been 422 books written on it. And it seems to have to do with the idea of being overly dependent on someone to the point where you're both dysfunctional. And we don't really look at, I think our, our field of mental health and addiction has sort of moved from partners being responsible or family members in part being responsible for the addiction and therefore they need to back away and look at their own stuff and see how they're a part of it and all that codependency stuff to really looking at partners through a lens of attachment. We are in mental health today in a, in a world of attachment, which means I'm not just healthy because I'm successful or I'm my gifts are being served or I'm out in the world or I have a job, a car, an apartment, and a husband. I'm successful because I have healthy relationships, because I have friends, because I have community, because I have family, because I get along with people at work. My measure of mental health today is gauged not just by my ability to succeed as an individual, but my ability also to connect. So if you kind of keep that perspective in mind, then then we're now moving toward an age of what I would call pro-dependence, which is more looking at partners and family members rather than what was wrong with you for staying with that person? You must be really troubled. More saying, wow, how courageous and brave of you to stay with that troubled person. Maybe, maybe you didn't know how to get them sober, but boy, you hung in there. You did the best you could, you know, and, and not, not this kind of... So, Families and partners are essential, but they also require boundaries because when you've been living with someone or very deeply involved with someone who's troubled for a long time, you can get a little troubled too. And so you start to do things with them that you kind of don't wish you would, but you kind of go along with, or you fill in the blanks when, they, when they're late or they don't show up for something. All of a sudden, you're fixing things for them that they should be doing on their own. And that is what, in part, we used to call codependency. I would say that's a natural attempt to try to help the person you love and heal the relationship you're in with the skills that you have. The problem is, is that spouses and partners are not meant to be treatment providers. You know, um, you need recovering people. You need meetings. You need groups. And you need people who are not as deeply invested in you and emotionally to help you. Because if I'm your wife or husband, I'm so deeply involved and it's so acutely painful and real for me, I kind of have a hard time detaching and just being real. And that's kind of what addicts need. They need kind of a no bullshit, speak truth to power kind of person who will say, I love you, I care about you, but I'm not putting up with any of that. And you need to take a look at it. And partners... You know, what partner went to high school learning how to deal with alcoholism or addiction? I mean, we're not trained. So the idea that you as a partner alone should be able to help your husband, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, learn how to heal addiction is not really reasonable. And it's an unreasonable burden to put on a partner. It's not a partner's responsibility to get somebody well. Um, it's a partner's responsibility to love someone to their be the best that they can and hope that they'll get love back in return. I know there's kind of the equivalent of the 12-step program for partners, Al-Anon. It's Al-Anon. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and uh, Al-Anon. And ACA. And, but as you mentioned, you know, this isn't something we grew up learning as none of the themes that we talk about are, but what would be kind of some guiding pieces of advice that you might lend to those people in terms of actionable advice that, that perhaps they could do with good intentions, but more direction, more information behind it to help ones close to them? Well, I think of it this way. If you're living with an addict who's actively using drinking, sexing, gambling, you're living with someone who's a little bit crazy. And so if you're living with crazy, you get a little crazy too. And it's hard to see the forest for the trees. So the number one most important thing for partners and spouses, and this is so hard for them because they're so ashamed and embarrassed and uncomfortable, is to get help for themselves. 
you know, partners will say, well, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not the addict. Why do I need help? And what I would say under a pro-dependence kind of view is you need help because you've been living with a crazy person. And they've been telling you that black is white and white is red and blue. You don't know, you know, you need support and nurturing to be able to show up for this very troubled partner with better boundaries and more structure. I don't believe in detachment from relationships, either you're in or you're out. But I do believe that you can set really clear boundaries and structure so you don't get end up, end up getting hurt or chronically abused if somebody is unable to get well. The BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate, is produced by Sasha Laurie in Berkeley, California. Dialogue, narrative, and content crafting by Amy Soper. Audio editing, good music vibes, and sound mixing, Daniel Herrera. You can learn more on our website or on our social media at bbxx.world. And if you believe in what we're doing, please do help spread the love by sharing this with someone you care about. Until next time.